The Human Genome Project was started in 1990 and it was declared finished in 2003. That's over 10 years ago and science moves pretty fast in a decade. DNA sequencing has become quick and affordable and we've moved from sequencing the DNA not just of individual organisms but whole ecosystems. And we've also broken a multi-billion year process and begun to synthesize DNA for ourselves. The new book, Biocode, The New Age of Genomics, shows us the edge of a scientific movement that really is transforming our understanding of the entire world. Today I'm talking to the book's two authors. Uh, Dawn Field is a fellow of the NERC Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and the founder of the Genomics Standards Consortium. And the other author is Neil Davies. And at the moment, Neil lives on the island of Maria in French Polynesia, where he is the executive director of the University of California's Pacific Research Station. So guys, uh, I just want to thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time out to have a chat today. Thank you. No, thanks. Pleasure. Uh, Neil, I'd like to address my first question to you, if I could. Um, could you just talk us through where are we currently at with genetic sequencing? I mean, we've sequenced the first person and we've been sequencing um, animals, but, but where exactly are we at? What, what percentage of life have we sequenced? Well, we've, we've sequenced uh, a tiny, tiny sliver of, of the biodiversity that's on the planet. Um, of course, most of that is microbial, but even for larger organisms like animals and plants, uh, there is still a vast number, millions of species that we haven't sequenced yet. Have, have we done? Uh, have we done like the? We've, so we've done people, and have we done like dogs, cats, uh, the sort of the zoo animals? <laughs> right. Yes, we, we we focused our attention on on the animals that we know know and love best. Um, so yes, a number of of those have been sequenced, including whole, up to the whole genomes. But the vast majority, the, the, by far the vast majority, remain unsequenced and, and indeed largely unknown um, to science still. So talk to us then about your decision to go from sequencing individual things to then sequencing all of the life on an entire island, on the island of Maria. Uh, except you're not doing the microbial life, are you? Uh, yes, we are, but we're, we're the project initiated with funding to do the visible life because one of the ideas is to go out and have to go out and catch everything and it helps if you can see it uh, so we, we we went out uh, so the target was to get one species at a time uh, of the larger life forms which which is doable for a system like this with you know, several thousands of species but still uh, the effort really is catching them they've obviously evolved not to be caught so we have to go out and find them all and many of them are are visible but very small and then each individual so it's, it's quite painstaking you have to get each individual and photograph them and extract some dna from their tissues and then sequence this especially a large part of the cost really are, are not in the sequencing it's in it, it's in catching the organism and uh subsequently analyzing its dna so the field work going out in the field and finding them all uh, and building up this this catalog is really the the largest part of the investment and it takes specialized people to go out and find uh, those organisms so we had to bring in you know literally had hundreds of people involved all specialists in their particular field knowing where to find their particular group of organisms that is a huge huge task i mean what what kind of count are you at what, what are the sort of numbers of the animals that you've you've identified and sequenced 
Right, we have about 40,000 uh, specimens collected and uh, probably around 8,000 species now we're expecting. Of course, species is, is a hypothesis in a sense. Uh, it, it evolves what what the species name is that some of these organisms haven't been described before. So, so it's always an estimate, but we have sequences and those aren't hypotheses. Those are DNA sequences, uh, observations, data. And so we can look at the variation uh, among these organisms on the island and get a handle on how many species there are and use those those tags, those DNA barcodes, which are really the, the species names. We can then use those in the observatory to start to see how those species interact with one another, which was the real purpose of the project. The first phase is the inventory, but the, the, kind of the more exciting phase really is once you've got this inventory, you're then able to set up a high throughput observatory of, of biological interactions. How fast are we now sequencing? I mean, with this like 40,000 uh, different, I mean, how fast are you able to now sequence the DNA of, a, of one of the specimens? Well, it can be very quick. It's not, it's not quite, it's not quite to the stage of squashing it on your iPhone and you get the result, but uh, yeah, usually send it off to a lab, a central facility. Um, it used to be like, like in the old days, sending your your <laughs> your film in to be developed uh, to get your photos back. So it, it's quite quick. So you can get it, you can get them back within within a day if if there's urgency. Um, I'll come back and we'll revisit this point in, in a minute. Um, uh, Dawn, I, I just want to address a couple of things to you. And I guess the first thing, I mean, there's uh, quite a number of points in your book that just kind of gave me those wow moments. Uh, one of them was that people are 99.9% .9 identical at the genetic level. That's right. So in many ways, genomics tells us how close we are all as people. And certainly we'd like to think that we all share primarily all the same DNA and we're very close to our closest ancestors well to chimps um, but it's those small changes now that we're learning make us different for example uh, the risks that we have to diseases the traits we have like eye color hair color uh, or the ways you might respond to drugs for example and so that's why there's so much investment today in continuing to sequence genomes because we're trying to understand that tiny part that makes us unique uh, why that's biologically significant. And in your book, you, you talk about, uh, in the US, these uh, DNA testing trucks that are currently <laughs> roaming the streets. Uh, what, what exactly, I mean, if I go along and, and line up and, and get my, myself tested, what exactly can they tell me? Right. So one of the classic things that DNA has always been used for, sort of in the public domain, is identity uh, verification. So this was in, used in forensics in the criminal system first, because you have a unique DNA fingerprint, even more unique than your than your fingerprints. And you can get this from a hair, from shed skin. Um, and these trucks now bring this testing, just like with drug testing, um, to the streets. So they drive around. It's called the Who's Your Daddy truck. Um, and in New York, it's now in Boston. They say when it hit Boston, there were a thousand people lined up. And you can do things like request paternity tests. Uh, that's the classic use. It's also useful for immigration. If you want to prove that you're related to a relative you're trying to bring in the country, um, there's a legal status that can be uh, uh, gained by DNA testing. You can also do things. Uh, they have examples of people finding long lost family members. For example, you think you have this affinity to somebody and you can't prove that you're related. They have wonderful stories of sisters finding each other. Uh, they also have a story of, unfortunately, a married couple finding out they shared the same father. So in many ways, this is about DNA being truth and now being very accessible to the point where you can get your food off a truck and, you know, right next to it, you can go and have your DNA tested. 
That's a, a, a small part of your book, but it was also very fascinating that uh, a, like a single hair is enough to sequence my, my whole DNA. So if I left one of my hairs at a crime scene, could the police then potentially recreate the whole 3D image of what I look like? So this is, if you're watching the news right now, this is one of these breaking stories. So every cell in our body has DNA. And with new technologies, you only need a cell. Uh, in order to get a genome out, so a full complement of DNA. So anything you shed, and you're shedding constantly, most of the dust in our houses is skin, of course, uh, you could get DNA from. So you comb your hair you know, in a public bathroom somewhere, somebody could come up, and there's an artist in New York who has done just this, and I think this might be what you're getting at. She's made 3D faces um, out of genotyping a few genes, so eye color, she can tell what color your eyes are, she can say something about your ethnicity, um, she's made them with a 3D printer and there's a lot of imagination, but forensics companies are now going a step further. And as I said in the news, they're now um, demonstrations that we can make 3D mugshots. So if you go to a crime scene, you've left a hair, the police find it, they can use genetics to say quite a bit about what you may look like. And now people are debating how much we know. And as much as we know about genomics, there's still huge amounts that we don't know yet. Um, so these are still guesses and estimates, but you can see it's happening. The, the field is moving quite quickly. And you could imagine in a few years that you would then have holograms of individuals. Um, it'll be an interesting future. A DNA, DNA is playing into all aspects of society now more and more. In terms of that comment that things are moving quickly, how, how overall, not just in this particular thing, but all, overall with, with uh, genomics and, and DNA, how is... Is the pace of change too fast for the average person to keep up? Interesting question. So it depends on how closely you're tracking research. And one of the nice facts is that the Human Genome Project, which is where most of us really became aware of genomics, was finished in 2003. It was a $3 billion project. It was the first big science project. And then it quickly moved forward to where Craig Venter was the first human sequence. Now Obama has announced a million human genomes project. And if you look at some of the um, projections into the future, we're talking about billions of genomes by 2020. So you've gone from in 20 years from one genome at 13 years and 13, uh, 3 billion to a uh, $100 genome and perhaps all of us being sequenced and resequenced for cancers. And so as you watch this, um, tracking it, the, the, it's just an explosion in technology um, and application at this point. It is. It's it's staggering. Like, and that's one thing that your book really uh, illustrates very well is this idea that we have now moved into not just sequencing, I guess, the island that you're doing, Neil, but but this focus on just kind of sequencing everything. It, it's an interesting thing, and this is what we played with in the book quite a bit because, on the one hand, we're sequencing a lot. There are many, many what we call mega sequencing projects, are so doing thousands of genomes at a time. On the other hand, they're millions of species out there and we still don't know what many of them are uh, and so we still haven't tapped a lot of biodiversity and of course there's one evolutionary tree all organisms are related so if you've sequenced a bird you know something about birds but you don't know everything about all birds so it's about which questions you want to ask uh, we're filling in the tree of life but there's still a lot to go uh, neil if if i could just ask you in your uh, in the book you you say that DNA sequencing is radically overhauling our understanding of life. But, but I guess, uh, what exactly do you guys mean? I mean, how, how are we understanding life differently now that we have this DNA sequencing? Well, in, in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, 
you know, DNA is the, the software on which life operates. So yeah, we're, we're really beginning to learn how cells function and how organisms function uh, from the molecular level up. So that's uh, that's a huge breakthrough. Of course, medicine is is reaping the rewards of that. Uh, we're also understanding in much more more detail because DNA is the the common thread uh, in the tree of life. By having full genomes from across across that tree, we're able to get a much better view of the evolutionary relationships among species. And we're also really beginning to understand how the variation we find within species, the genetic variation among different organisms, is also incredibly important for ecosystem processes. So it's not good enough really for us to just to look at a, a small number of species. You know, we have to look at a large number of species if we want to understand how systems function, how very complex systems function, including the microbes. You know, we can't just look at the, the birds and the plants, which is what ecology has tended to do for good reason, because we can see them and count them uh, as this vast invisible world, which is you know, most of the genetic diversity and the molecular machinery that, that operates the planet is in this invisible spectrum of life. And for the first time, uh, we're now able to really start to study that ecologically. And we've been able to see it with microscopes, but we haven't really been able to understand its function. So that that's a vast change in our capacity to understand the, uh, the planetary life support systems. But really what's what's fascinating too, and what, what I think is the, the sort of bigger paradigm shift in some ways is that we're also understanding that our organisms are also ecosystems. Uh, so we have millions of bacteria inside us, and along with our human cells, they make up our human body. And we have to understand how we as ecosystems uh, function. So we have an internal ecosystem, uh, which is vital to our health. And that internal ecosystem interacts with our external ecosystem, which is also very diverse. And genomics is really showing this web of life of internal our organism, how it connects to the web of life uh, surrounding us up to the planet. Yeah, your 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 comment in in the book that each person has what is it ten times more bacteria uh, than human cells. That's right. Yeah, we no, we are we are, we are at, you know whether that changes how we think of ourselves. You know, we think of ourselves as human, and of course we are human. We have a human genome, and that's the foundation of our bodies. <laughs> but uh, you know, like a forest, the foundation is the trees. But within that forest, there's a lot of other species that make that forest function. Uh, so we have our trees, <laughs> our body is the, the human uh, foundation, but then we have all of these other species inside us that help us function as humans. And Don, when you talk about, uh, in the book, ending the war on microbes, like, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Interesting point you brought that up. So we've spent most of human history trying to make ourselves healthy, so fighting pathogens, and of course a lot of those are microbial, bacterial, and otherwise fungi. Um, so we tend to have this stigma almost against the microbial world that it makes us sick. And yet, in reality, there are only about 200 bacterial pathogens out of millions of bacterial species. And the revolution that's happening now, especially with this ability to look at DNA and understand who's in a community, is that most microbes are either good for you or, or don't hurt you. And so the pathogens are, are quite rare. And more and more, we're understanding that it's these communities of microbes. For example, on our teeth, what you have is a healthy community on your teeth that maintains the integrity um, 
of your teeth if you get bad ones in there or your community falls apart that's when you get cavities um, and people are understanding especially in babies as babies develop up their microbiomes in their guts it's a protective uh, sort of layer there's a good community that keeps out the few bad things and so we're very much um, needing to dial down on antibiotics. Uh, the World Health Organization says that uh, drug-resistant bacteria or antibiotics don't work anymore. That's probably one of the biggest health threats that humanity faces right now in terms of medicine, that if these things evade our ability to kill them off, we'll be back into the pre-antibiotic era. So this idea that microbes are always bad, we need to kill them off, we need to get rid of them, we need to overcome that and, and acknowledge how good they are. Uh, they drive our biogeochemical cycles on Earth, and they drive our digestion and a lot of aspects of our health in our own bodies. One of the standout uh, bits of this as well was you mentioned that, um, I think it was being applied in hospitals, instead of like disinfectant sprays that kill the bacteria or kill everything, the companies are developing sprays of good bacteria. Yes, that's an absolute paradigm shift, that you actually protect yourself by having good there, because then bad can't establish itself, whether it's cavities, whether it's salmonella on your kitchen top, uh, whether it's your gut. Breastfed babies have healthy guts with lots of bifidia bacteria that actually stem uh, other bad bacteria colonizing. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, that adage of letting your children just eat dirt is uh, maybe not a bad thing. Yes, let them eat dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, if I could uh, come back to you and uh, maybe get back to your work on the island of Maria, because, and I guess, well, this is for both of you, I guess, because it is a bigger question. And there must be a difference between mapping something, mapping a country or mapping DNA sequences, but then interpreting those maps and, and being able to then use them. So so w where are we, I guess, with all of this? Are, are we just at the mapping stage or are we really being able to interpret what we're finding and using them? Right. Yeah, the, we, we're certainly still at an inventory or mapping stage. Uh, you know, it's a, a new era really of uh, golden age, a new golden age of exploration. You know, we have this amazing new instrument, genomics, and we can see things that we, we could never see before. Uh, that's inside ourselves and our own genomes, but also the vast diversity, previously invisible diversity that was out there. So there's certainly a lot of excitement and a lot to learn simply, simply by mapping uh, and describing the, that diversity. And then, you know, science proceeds largely through that process of discovery, of finding new things, seeing new patterns, and then trying to understand and interpret those, as you say. So the next phase from in inventory and discovery is uh, forming hypotheses and testing those hypotheses to try to understand process. And of course, those those proceed in tandem. So while we are still in in this incredibly exciting phase of discovery, and that that will continue for, for some time, there's a lot there's a lot out there to discover. Um, but we're also moving into the phase of trying to understand those patterns. So we're seeing the first. Uh, data coming in and we're trying to explain those data and that will rely on experimentation uh, and to understand process you really have to study things over time and that's the key transition from the inventory to the observatory how are you managing this sheer volume of data it's 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 a big big challenge because the the, the amount of data we have from genomic sequencing is vast and 
along with that challenge is connecting those data to other data sets. So a DNA sequence on its own really doesn't mean very much at all unless you can put it into the context of that sequence. What organism was it collected from? What was the species? What was that organism doing at the time? Was it healthy? Was it sick? Was it being eaten? <laughs> was it uh, eating something? Uh, so there's a lot of context. Uh, what was the temperature at the time? What was the acidity if it was a marine organism surrounding it? So connecting the genomic sequence data to all of the surrounding uh, data, environmental data, is is really pro probably the more significant challenge than the, just the quantity of data. It's the heterogeneity of those those data sources, which go from molecule, you know, the surrounding of that sequence, what was happening in the cell at the time, right up to what was society doing at the time, what was the fishing policy of <laughs> that ecosystem. Um, so it, it extends really from molecular data through physical to social data that we need to all connect to understand these complex social ecological systems. Let me just, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I, I'm going to actually read like a, a little paragraph from your book um, because I, I read it and it was just one of those moments I was like, holy was it page 3134 and it was like today for the first time dna is not only fashioned by nature but also written by man dna synthesizers are adding new pieces to the biocode fresh buds on the venerable tree of life the significance of this newfound human capacity remains to be seen but it certainly marks a radical break in a multi-billion year process that has got to be quite a big deal uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I guess my naivety, I wasn't aware, I guess, of just where we're at with synthesizing DNA and synthesizing life. Uh, Dawn, so can you maybe just fill us in? Like, where, where are we up to with that? So one of the things we, we do talk about in the book is that as we get better at reading DNA, we understand more and more what it does, and you keep building up this fluency until you try to write it yourself. And we've always been able to write very short pieces of DNA. And Craig Venter and colleagues um, actually cracked uh, the technique of writing very long pieces of DNA, so long enough that they could create recreate a bacterium. And they've put in places the same technology that you use for cloning, where you put a genome back in a, another cell, like Dolly the sheep we're all familiar with, that was cloning. What they've done is actually read out a genome of a bacterium, put it in the computer, then resynthesized it in the lab. So they call it the first genome that had a computer for a mother. So it's a, a digitally born organism. They took that synthetic DNA molecule, which it took them a long time to get a, a piece that long, that's about 500,000 base pairs, and put it back into a cell and showed that it booted up from that genome. So it replaced all the proteins in that cell. And that, that cell really is running off that synthetic genome. And what that means um, is that we have the chance to modify genomes in the future and create these uh, boutique um, organisms, so designer organisms, which, of course, they'd like to do to create alternative fuels or um, other synthetic uh, molecules that you might be able to use or to replace parts of what we're currently doing with biotechnology. Uh, what's much, much harder is to create new organisms. So we still haven't done that yet, but certainly synthetic organisms exist. There's a bacteria called Cynthia working on yeast, which is a, a slightly bigger microbe. There's still much, much more that we'd have to learn before you could make synthetic uh, higher organisms, but certainly the technology is there and it's moving very, very fast. 
Because you you kind of comment that gene sequencing is not just the end of the story, that, that it's the cells that are needed to execute these genomic instructions, and we can't quite do the cell thing yet. Yes. So one of the interesting ways to look at this is that people are now getting bold enough to talk about de-extinction. So there are many, many organisms that have gone extinct at, at man's hands. Um, the mole, for example, um, the dodo, uh, the mammoth. There's this idea that once we've read these genomes, we could reboot them up, but you need a viable cell, and we don't know yet how to make cells. So, for example, booting up a mammoth would mean uh, putting it back in an elephant cell. And so a genome by itself is like having a CD. Without a stereo, you can't play the music that's on the CD or the DVD. Um, and we're in the same position now. And then in a more interesting way, um, the book also talks about how the half-life of DNA is so short that we probably won't get dinosaur DNA. A lot of us would like to have dinosaurs back again. Um, I was yeah. so disappointed. I was so disappointed. Can... can uh, Ah, uh, can you just just make that clear for everybody? So, what what did tell us about the shelf life of DNA? So there was a lot of debate and a lot of papers um, saying that people had gotten DNA out of amber. This is sort of the basis for Jurassic Park, if you remember that. That there was uh, DNA in mosquitoes, and that you could bring back dinosaurs. And unfortunately, a much more recent study of moa bones um, in New Zealand shows that the half life of DNA is only about a million years. After that, all the four bases have just fallen apart completely. There's no information left. You can't reconstruct DNA. So right now, 700,000 years, this Thistle Creek horse, um, this prehistoric horse is the oldest we've gone back. But what I wanted to say about, about bringing back dinosaurs is that even if we could bring back dinosaurs or we could somehow computationally reconstruct what a dinosaur looks like from looking at birds today, um, we'd still have this problem that we, for example, don't know what the dinosaur microbiome looks like. Like to reanimate uh, this creature, we'd not only have to have its innate genome, but also its microbiome perhaps. So you're telling me that I can get a 700,000-year-old horse, but no dinosaurs. Unfortunately. But the horse is still really, really good. I'm sure it's <laughs> very cool, but like an old horse compared to Tyrannosaurus Rex? Ah. Anyway, guys, it must be so cool for the both of you to, to be involved in an area that is such uh, so fast-paced and really exploding and making such changes. And look, thanks for the book. It, it certainly gave me a, a much better understanding of the overall what's happening. And uh, thanks for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're, guys, you're welcome. You've been listening to Professor Dawn Field and Dr. Neil Davies talk about their new book, Biocode, The New Age of Genomics. And uh, you've, well, you've also heard me, Craig Barfoot, asking them questions. Thanks for taking the time out of your life to listen to this. Ciao.